Hello and welcome to The Lancet HIV. I'm Peter Hayward, the editor of the journal, and to mark World AIDS Day on Tuesday, December the 1st, I've spoken to three well-known experts about some of the major HIV topics of 2015 and what to look forward to in 2016. You'll hear from Chris Byra, Professor of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Pedro Kahn, Professor of Infectious Diseases at Buenos Aires University Medical School, and Sharon Lewin of the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, University of Melbourne. I began by asking Chris Byer about the START trial, the results of which were released earlier this year, and what these findings mean for HIV. This, of course, is a sea change for the field in many ways. I think what START showed us, many would say, had been clear from cohort and, and observational data for some years, but a well-done randomized controlled trial has power to move fields like nothing else. And of course, DART showed a 50% overall reduction in clinical outcomes, including malignancies, tuberculosis, and of course, mortality. And people started or offered immediate therapy as opposed to waiting for CD4 decline. Pedro Kahn shares Chris's views on the START trial, and he was involved in the WHO Guidelines Committee, which was meeting to discuss recommendations for treatment just as the results of the trial came out. I think that the START trial was very useful to convince those that were more reluctant to base their clinical decision on the information we had, again, from the biological point of view and also from the very strong cohort data, on top of those that showed a couple of years before that uh, treatment works as an as a extraordinary prevention tool. This is the main merit of the, of the start trial, to confirm what we already knew in terms of the biology of the, of the disease. And on top of that, I would say that the most striking issue that I saw from the start trial was that there's no CD4 ceiling for being at risk for AIDS-related diseases, no? So if you, if you look closely at the START trial, you, you will see that even with 800 or 900 CD4s, you still are more at risk to get some particular cancers like Kaposi uh, sarcoma, lymphoma, etc. So I think that this puts the last nail on the coffin on the discussion on when to start. That's the reason why WHO, the WHO guidance panel, which I'm part of it, and I, I was there when we finally decided to convince those more, again, more reluctant to to buy the, the, the idea to recommend universal treatment for everybody. No? That must have been, I guess, sort of a, an interesting discussion, an interesting panel to be involved in. Absolutely interesting, and <laughs> I can tell you it was not, not that easy. Many of us, uh, members of the panels, were ready to support the, the, the move to test and treat even before knowing the results of the STAR trial. Really, it was a, a very fortunate coincidence that just four days before the WHO started the meeting in, in Geneva, I think it was June 1st, four days before the STAR trial committee released, the NIH, I think it was, released the, the press release informing the preliminary results of the STAR trial and deciding to stop the arm that, that, that was not receiving antiretroviral. So uh, this was uh, very helpful for us. But recommendations to test and treat have obvious implications for resources and funding. Chris Byra. What that's operationally going to mean, and, uh, and it does appear that WHO will make the formal, we have interim guidance, but the formal guidance will be out indeed on World AIDS Day, is that 22 million people living with HIV are going to become eligible for therapy who are not currently on therapy. We have 15 million worldwide who are on therapy. So that's going to more than double 
potential number of people who are going to be eligible. It really is now going to be an enormous challenge to try and figure out how already struggling health systems are going to cope if the both national and uh, donor resources are going to be there. That's uh, another point of concern, isn't it? What's the general situation amongst uh, donor bodies and, and national funding for these programmes? Is it really realistic to expect those 22 million people to reach the treatment they need? I think there are several trends that we're seeing currently and also looking ahead to 2016 that are uh, a cause for real concern. First of all, on the positive side, last year we passed an important milestone in that uh, more than half of all money being spent on HIV-AIDS treatment and prevention was coming from host governments. So that really is important. And in the long run, particularly for the middle-income countries, this is the only sustainable way to, to really support these costs. But of course, for many of the poorer and more heavily burdened countries, what we're hearing and what we're very concerned about is that the European Union, which has been, of course, a very important uh, multilateral donor for global HIV, TB, malaria, really may, may be moving resources from overseas development assistance to deal with the European migration crisis. That is a kind of existential threat on the horizon. Moving on from treatment, prevention provided another big story this year. Here's Sharon Lewin. The initial studies with PrEP were perhaps a little mixed um, in different populations and a wide range of efficacy. And then the two most more recent studies this year in Gay and Proud, I think really demonstrated the profound impact PrEP can have in many of the men at high risk of HIV infection. And I think the other very interesting evidence coming out is probably really coming from San Francisco showing increasing uptake of PrEP associated with decline in new infection. That's incredibly exciting given that places like San Francisco and places like Australia, although the numbers of new infections are obviously very low on a global scale, haven't really budged for a long time. PrEP is probably going to be even more of a challenge to implement. It's been incredibly disappointing how few countries have been able to adopt it. In Australia, for example, I think we're still years off having it here when there is a clear benefit in preventing infection and most likely cost-effective as well. As countries like Australia and Europe and US, not of coming off patent could make a very big difference in how we're able to roll it out. The challenges still are enormous on, on how we think we might roll it out in low-income countries. Together with the added challenge of testing and treatment and retention in care, these are significant issues to address. But we've got these incredible tools now to prevent new infections, which I think make this a very exciting time. Yeah, it really does feel in a way that 2015 could be one of those special years for HIV. I don't know if you get that sort of impression as well. I felt that very much in Vancouver where presentations of START were made and the increasing number of demonstration projects being presented around PrEP. It suddenly kind of seemed this is going to happen, you know, really preventing new infections with HIV treatment as prevention along with PrEP. Of course, as we've, I think, said for many years now, the challenge is really around implementation. But we've had a lot of great success in that in the past, but a lot more, lot more work to do there. Chris Byra. I think 
the efficacy and effectiveness now uh, of PrEP is looking better and better. And, of course, we have, unfortunately, a global trend in high or rising rates of incident HIV in young men who have sex with men. We're seeing that in the U.S., in the U.K., in Paris, in France. We're seeing it in places like Thailand, China, Kenya, just striking levels uh, of HIV acquisition. So we have a, a very serious set of sub-epidemics that are not trending in good directions in 2015, and we have an effective, highly effective intervention that works for that mode of transmission. Oral PrEP really works well for anorectal exposure, probably because of tenofovir's uptake and distribution in the gut through the oral route, and this, after all, is a gut exposure. So you have a problem, you have a solution, but we have an enormous implementation and delivery gap. And again, of course, that is going to have a big impact on the funding because even the UK, you know, a wealthy country that is an important donor in the global space, is balking at the price of domestic PrEP distribution, as is Australia. Cure research is one topic that everyone wants to know about and a field with which Sharon Lewin is very much involved. But where are we in the search for a cure in 2015? 2015 probably hasn't had the same level of excitement as treatment and prevention in the cure world. I think the reality is setting in to the field that this is going to be pretty difficult. I think the idea that we're able to cure HIV is rapidly diminishing. Not saying it's impossible, but the target really is now for HIV remission. Certainly the cases of prolonged remission and then rebound now reported several years ago, the Boston patients and Mississippi baby, I think made people a lot more sceptical, a lot more aware that the cure is going to be really, really quite difficult. I think the idea of, or the knowledge that around post-treatment controls, again reported several years ago now, does raise hope that remission may be possible. I think we've had a, quite a lot of advances in understanding a bit more about where the reservoir is sitting, the importance of tissue rather than blood, and the importance of different T-cell subsets, that there are probably lots of different flavours of latency and we're getting better insight into that. It's an exciting time because a lot of ideas are now moving into clinical trials, early phase clinical trials. Even when they're small and exploratory, they can really give us important clues of where to go next. And I think a great example of that are these studies around shock and kill or you know activating latent infection. There's now been five or six small studies and we've learnt already quite a bit. I think we've learnt that activating the virus is unlikely to be all that's needed. We need much better ways to measure um, how much virus we've activated and we need much less toxic drugs to activate the virus. At the same time, there's some exciting changes in the cancer world, in immuno-oncology and ways to boost T-cell function with these immune checkpoint blockers that I think are now, we're going to hear a lot more about these drugs for HIV. The hope is that they will work Similarly, in long-term control of HIV as they're working for in cancer. In the next year, there's going to be quite a few very important clinical trials that we will learn quite a lot from and inform future studies, both in the lab and in the clinic. 2016 looks to be shaping up to be an interesting year for HIV. Pedro Khan looks forward to prospects for treatment. We're going to see 
uh, more progress in the same path we are seeing now in terms of expanding access to antiretroviral therapy. Also make, make the news in 2016, which is the combination of cabotegravir and relpivirin, the, the recently released data of the latest study that you published in Lancet Infectious Diseases, I think. This paves the way for the long-acting regimens. I think this would, this would be kind of a start in 2016 because once it has been proven that the cabotegravir with relpivirin can work, now it's time to to test more, more intensively this long-acting regimen that, as you know, could mean that you give to your patients one shot once a month or even once every three months, and this could have implications both for treatment and for breath. And in July next year, the International AIDS Conference returns to Durban, which last hosted the event 16 years ago. I asked Sharon Lewin what we might expect to be the key themes. Durban is going to be a very um, historic meeting 16 years after the and meeting in 2000, it's incredible to think back where we've come from in those 16 years. There will be a mixed sense of pride, some optimism about the future, but I'm sure some bleak stories as well where there are great disparities in access to treatment, disturbing stories of high rates of HIV infection in young women, for example, and some really, really challenging operational issues for getting what we know works into communities across Africa. I think there'll be some highs and lows there. There are, of course, some incredible success stories, including from South Africa, and I, I hope we can really celebrate those. When we had the conference in Melbourne in 2014, we really highlighted the, the variability of the epidemic, the key populations, the regression, the key populations at risk who could be falling behind or are falling behind, the discriminatory laws that are reappearing in different parts of the world, largely against men who have sex with men and sex workers. And Africa has some countries that have propagated some of those uh, views. So I'm hoping we see some changes from what we were hearing about in Melbourne in 2014. And I think we'll hear a lot more about paediatric HIV, which was is, is, is less talked about or focused on, in certainly in countries like Australia, where we see so little of it. You know, I'm hoping there are some good news stories there. Cuba eliminating mother-to-child transmission. Can we see more countries? Can countries in Africa reach any, come close to those targets. And in the area of cure, of course, um, you know, paediatric cure is one setting where very early treatment is actually possible, could make a real difference, and Africa could play a very major role in addressing that issue. And Chris Byra is currently president of the International Aid Society. So finally, let's hear from Chris about his thoughts on what 2016 holds, and on the meeting in Durban in particular. Peter, it's really very extraordinary. Back to Durban, South Africa, 16 years after the last uh, international aid conference to be held in Africa. And of course, it's a completely different world. In 2000, the treatment era had really not begun. AIDS denialism was predominant in the government in South Africa. Of course, uh, President Becky denied that HIV was the cause of AIDS. And here we are 16 years later, going back to a country that now has more people on treatment than any other in the world, and of course, more people living with HIV than any other in the world. But Durban is is the capital of KwaZulu-Natal, the most affected province in the country, and still a place with extraordinarily high rates of infection, new infection in uh, particularly young women and girls. We're going to highlight and we're going to really see the 
the extraordinary changes, the amazing, really human milestone of 15 million people on antiviral therapy, but also, of course, the work undone. Many of the countries in the region are going to have to double their AIDS treatment programs. And of course, as people are surviving and HIV, even in Africa, is becoming a chronic infection, we're dealing with all of the increasing co-infections and comorbidities, the malignancies, the cardiovascular complications, the metabolic syndromes. And so the disease is more burdensome, not less to the healthcare system. We think there's a real advance, real possibility of, of reductions in perinatal HIV transmission, but actually across the continent, the population who are doing the worst in terms of clinical outcomes remain children with HIV. We're going to have a major focus on women and girls, on adolescents, on the key populations, on co-infections and comorbidities, and on access to care. The theme of the conference is access, equity, rights now, and we think that all of those elements really, really are going to come together in Durban in some powerful ways. We really hope that this also is a moment for the world to, to recommit to finishing the job in HIV AIDS and, of course, to really making real the promise of immediate therapy for, for people who need it.